Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I've got three medical students with me today. Uh, let's do some introductions. My name's Danny Hansen, I'm a medical student at Rocky Vista University. I'm Miles Brooks, I'm also a med student at Rocky Vista University. And Taylor, this podcast all about you. So as you may know, we're gonna ask you a few more questions than just your name. Yeah. Yeah? So. <laughs> Taylor Van Leeuwen, fourth year med student at Rocky Vista University. Now Taylor, you are not headed into psychiatry, but you came into the fourth year elective here. You had originally been scheduled, I think, for a third year elective with us at the Utah State Hospital and then uh, Corona virus happened, I believe. Yes. Tell us what you're going into. I'm going into physical medicine and rehabilitation. And tell me how the podcast that we're going to do today relates to what you might go into. So my main interest is in pain management and that's uh, going to be very important to understand where the pain comes from and isolate the pain uh, in certain patients and what we're going to be talking about today is going to be uh, a different way of finding that pain and understanding where it comes from I think kind of excited to do this. By the way, this is a first ever at this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by McKenna's Rice Krispie Treats, <laughs> brought in by Danny. I've never really enjoyed a Rice Krispie Treat in my life until today. So thank you, <laughs> McKenna, for those Rice Krispie Treats. Amen. All right, on that note, uh, Danny, you are familiar with McKenna, I think. Fairly. Uh, your spouse, did she help you prepare for this podcast? Every day for the last two weeks. <laughs> I never know if you're telling the truth or not. It's not like Miles, who is like, uh, like he's like a lie detector. You just always know. Case goes red. All right, let's keep moving along. Sorry about that. So case, uh, case scenario. So case scenario, you have a 25-year-old female who comes to your office for a follow-up visit after coming complaining of chronic fatigue and an aching tired feeling in her legs. She has uh, a history of childhood ADHD and her father was bipolar. She had dropped out of high school but went back and got her GED. She suffered a sexual assault about two years ago uh, while at her place of employment and for the last about 15 months she's been going to several different providers trying to get an answer for this dull aching pain and fatigue that she's been having in her legs. She's had multiple blood tests and hasn't had uh, any positive symptoms or any positive results come up and she's very concerned that something is wrong but uh, is thinks that something's being missed. Alright for those of you listening along uh, hopefully you have a diagnosis in your mind. I'm gonna pause for just a moment to see if you can get that before we start talking about it. Alright that's enough time. Taylor, tell us uh, what we're listening to here. What is, what is this an example of? So the actual diagnosis is going to be the somatic symptom disorder and, other, uh, and, and among other disorders. It's where a uh, patient will have somatic symptoms that are distressing and result in significant disruption of their function and uh, can include um, excessive and disproportionate thoughts, feelings, and behaviors regarding those symptoms. So again, it's somatic symptom disorder. And we can tell this from this patient 
because of her uh, her need to continue uh, to go to uh, various doctors, continue tests um, with with no real positive uh, testing, as we had uh, heard from Danny. A couple of things I think are worth pointing out that point us that direction in this question. One is the risk factor of sexual abuse, and the other is the multiple uh, attempts to find a physician, so high medication, medical utilization without any benefit. Does that sound about right? That's true. One other thing to point out is the family history being a big uh, part of this as well, having both mother and father in this instance uh, having um, psychiatric uh, illnesses or disorders as well. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the differential here because I think when we try to focus on these high yield concepts, we've, we've tried to put those at the beginning of the podcast. How would you differentiate this from something like illness anxiety disorder or uh, FND, functional neurological disorder, or even factitious disorder or malingering? Perhaps start by telling us uh, what illness anxiety disorder is. So illness anxiety disorder, uh, it's very similar to somatic symptom disorder. However, it's going to, the basis, the base difference is it's going to have a minimal to no somatic symptoms, but retaining that high health anxiety and distressing thoughts about that illness. I also understand that maybe there's a lot of fear about acquiring an illness, perhaps uh, if somebody hears that somebody else got sick, they will start worrying about that, that, that maybe they will catch that illness. And Miles, I see you nodding your head. I think you had a, a few thoughts on that because I think you might even have that section in your hand on the, in the DSM. On the illness anxiety disorder? Yeah, um, with that one, the, the first thing that, can, that, that comes to mind is uh, a character in the TV show Scrubs, and I can't remember his name. Uh, but there's one that demonstrates that pretty well. And you wanted me to go over the diagnostic criteria for that, is that correct? No, I just okay. saw you nodding your head when oh, you were yeah, listening that to that. All. But <laughs> if, if you're just thinking about scrubs, we'll have to watch more of that in the future. All right, so illness anxiety disorder, the, one of the predominant differences then, if I'm understanding what you're saying, Taylor, is that there's not a focus on somatic symptoms. It's a focus on either having an illness or acquiring an illness. Whereas somatic symptom disorder is more about the somatic symptoms driving the train as opposed to the fear of illness driving the train, so to speak. That's correct. And I kind of like to think illness anxiety disorder is the first, first year medical student going through microbiology and reading all about all those diseases and bugs and assuming that they have each one of them. I personally went through that and know about 10 other med students who came to me and said, I think I have blank because I just read about it. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't want to throw Miles under the bus here, but Miles told me that happened with every single section in medical school during that first year, every single, you know, whether it was neuro, whether it was uh, musculoskeletal, you know, every, everything, genetic disorders. I think he mentioned that he suffered through each one of those. Or maybe that was somebody else. I'm not sure, Miles. I think it was somebody else. But, <laughs> and the name has slipped me. I feel awful. The, the bamboo spine. What am I thinking of? Ankylosing spondylitis. Ankylosing spondylitis. HLA, like B27 or something like that's that. Anyway, yeah, that's the one that I I thought, oh, no, I, I think I have this because I would, anyway, not very flexible, but that's just because I'm Okay, so that's funny because that's actually one of the ones I worried about, too. That's, uh, But I think that's a great example is the worried medical student, right? 
next illness on the list that I have is <laughs> conversion disorder is what it was previously called, but it has a new name now, as do the two, uh, the two conditions that we mentioned before this. Somatic symptom disorder used to be called somatoform disorder. Illness anxiety disorder used to be called escaping me all of a sudden. Hypochondriasis. Hypochondriasis, thank you. And uh, conversion disorder is now called? Functional Neurological Symptom Disorder, or FND. And interestingly enough, the criteria for these have been changed somewhat from the DSM-IV-TR as well. So the last version of the DSM, there seems to be some subtle changes in these uh, conditions. So conversion disorder, how would we think about that, Taylor? I'm sorry, Functional Neurological Symptom Disorder, how would we think about that? So, <clears throat> <coughs> sorry, uh, it's going to have one or more symptoms of, uh, of altered voluntary motor or sensory function, and with that, it will have clinical findings that do not agree with the symptoms. The example I gave in group was uh, if you've got some stressor uh, or PTSD, think uh, in, a, in, a, in a soldier who comes back from the war um, after having a traumatic event and he's got a dead arm or leg and it doesn't work. He can't feel it, he can't move it. But every test, imaging uh, and, and you know nerve conduction studies, uh, muscle, muscle biopsies, everything says everything should be normal except for the fact that you can't use it. That's functional neurological symptom disorder. Excellent. And factitious disorder? So factitious disorder uh, also had a different name in the past, a uh, very old name called Munchausen, and uh, now it's called factitious disorder. And it's basically falsification of physical or psychological signs and symptoms, uh, or a, a, a infliction of injury or disease uh, associated with identified uh, deceit and dissension um, towards the healthcare community. So basically, uh, they do something bad to themselves or factitious disorder by proxy to someone else, like a child, uh, and they do something to injure them so that they can get into uh, the healthcare scene uh, deceitfully. And this seems to be somewhat different than a diagnosis that is no longer, uh, I, let me say this a different way, there was something that used to be called malingering in the DSM-IV. It's been pulled out as a psychiatric diagnosis and placed in the V codes. So the difference between malingering and factitious disorder, help me understand that. So uh, to describe or to tell the difference between factitious disorder and malingering, um, you have to understand primary versus secondary intention. And primary intention is to uh, kind of step into the role of the patient um, or, or, you know, gain kind of the attention or just be involved in the healthcare, uh, or, you know, healthcare uh, administered to yourself. Whereas secondary intention is going to be something where. Uh, you gain something financially or uh, in the case of somebody who's trying to you know be a, da a draft dodger they say oh I've got some disease and I therefore can't 
be in the army now. Sorry, guys. Uh, so that's the secondary intention of, of, of uh, uh, or secondary gain. Yeah. I, I usually hear those primary and secondary gain, primary gain, secondary gain, um, and the intention of what the act is is the is the important part of that. Right, understanding what people want out of that. That's a by the way, that's a great description, Taylor. Most people that come into a primary care setting don't come in and say. Doc, I'm pretty sure I've got somatic symptom disorder and I want you to treat me, right? They're not coming in that way. They're coming in with the somatic concerns and a great deal of anxiety. You read a great article, I think, a very descriptive article on what primary care physicians are faced with trying to sort out how do you you recognize what is uh, symptomatic of physical illness and symptomatic of some sort of psychological condition, right? Talk to me about that. So in primary care, uh, trying to figure out what patients are suffering from is is quite difficult in general just because of the, the breadth of the field. But when you're dealing with patients who, uh, uh, to, to quote one of my, my favorite sayings in medical school, when you hear hoof beats, you, you think of a horse, not a zebra or a giraffe. So when you see patients come in with psychological uh, uh, disorders, mental health problems. You think, you know, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, things like that. Uh, Or something maybe more specific like a panic disorder because of a certain stressor that usually tips these off. Whereas when we're talking about somatic symptom disorder, uh, this (coughs) article we're referring to said that within a 12-month prevalence, uh, it had about a 3.5% prevalence in primary care just for somatoform disorders. Um, a large percentage of them had uh, depressive disorders, uh, com- uh, comorbid depressive disorders in about 53.5% based on this article and then uh, anxiety was 465 um, So a little bit, you know, basically every other patient was going to have depression or anxiety with their somatoform disorder diagnosis. Now, I, I read that. Are, are you talking about the... I'm trying to find my papers here. There's a lot here. Is this the Husing article? That's correct. Okay. And the comorbidity articles. Okay, great. Because those numbers are actually similar to another article that we're going to read, but those numbers that are similar, similar represent quite different ideas. So just to review this... There's a lot of comorbidity between conditions, depression, anxiety, and what was formerly known as a somatoform disorder, now known as a somatic uh, symptom disorder, correct? That's correct. Okay, good. Then I'm tracking that, and that is really good. Now, the next article on primary care talks a little bit about how difficult it is to correctly recognize these conditions in the primary care setting. Tell me a little bit about that article. Is this the... This is the Piontech article, yeah. Yeah, so uh, this was an article that that, uh, saw where a normal PCP or primary care physician, um, if they agreed with the uh, CIDI uh, diagnosis, kind of more defined diagnosis of these somatoform symptom, uh, or somatic symptom disorders, and the results of this article uh, basically just said that the, the agreement between a primary care physician diagnosis and the 
this uh, the, the article, um, the CIDI diagnosis, the agreement with yes and yes said about 32.3%, or 32 so basically one-third of all of the uh, uh, diagnoses were agreed upon. Um, half for depressive and about a quarter for anxiety were also agreed upon. So I just want to back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about diagnosis. I think it's very easy to ask about two or three symptoms without considering the broader differential. And I don't know that most physicians would generally consider the broader differential of a somatoform, I'm sorry, a, <laughs> a somatic symptom uh, disorder, right? And so the CIDI is actually a, a structured interview that can be used and seems to have uh, a high reproducibility and seems to generally accurately make diagnoses, psychiatric and mental health diagnoses correctly. And that there's this little agreement between the somatoform disorders is somewhat concerning. And perhaps even more concerning is that uh, there's even less uh, overlap between the recognition of, of anxiety disorders. Now, the one, the one thing that I think this speaks to in part, though, is that that number of nearly 50% uh, of the time physicians are correctly identifying depression seems to probably be a step forward. And, and I think I've mentioned this in other settings, where primary, where my medical students that are rotating with primary care physicians are consistently telling me we're using the Beck Depression, in, or not the Beck Depression Inventory, sorry, the PHQ, the Patient Health Questionnaire, to try and correctly identify depression, use that to monitor for recovery, right? This is a screening task. There's, there's a lot of attention to depression, at least in the area that our students are rotating. So, so I think that number may even be higher now. And the question is, how do we do a better job at recognizing anxiety and somatoform, dis, uh, sorry. Somatic symptom. Disorders. Thank you, and I, I appreciate you. when I next time I do that, Miles, will you hit me? Just no. pop me in the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Just point of the book there. You got in your lap. <laughs> Save me. Uh, now, one of the things that I think is also interesting. You're talking. You talked about in the uh, first primary care paper about the overlap in symptoms. There's a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression that seems to be found in uh, somatic symptom disorder, and I think that's one of the reasons why we. When we looked, when you looked more than I did, but when when you looked for articles looking for treatment of somatic symptom disorder, you came across a lot of treatments that have primarily been used in the treatment of anxiety and depression. And I think that because of that overlap, that's probably why that has happened. Talk, tell me a little bit about um, the current state of evidence for psychotherapies for treatment of somatic symptom disorder. So one of the papers I pulled up uh, on uh, cognitive behavioral therapy efficiency uh, basically told me that uh, comparing to the usual gold standard care, um, the, the group that was uh, given both CBT and uh, SNRIs and all that kind of stuff uh, said, they had a decrease in limitations due to physical problems and in pain over a 12-month time. And that's a big thing to, to point out is that most of these patients are also in a lot of pain. Um, but the normal pain management does not work for these people. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the effects happen to be larger and more clinically relevant for patients with more recent symptoms and fewer physical diseases uh, than you know the, the standard anxiety, depression, and somatic symptoms. We looked at uh, Cochrane reviews from 2012, and my impression was there were not a lot of uh, strong randomized control trials that had been performed up to that time. Um, I think that uh, the data was kind of all over the place with SSRIs, if I recall correctly, mm -hmm. uh, that perhaps St. John St. John's Wort has some reasonable data. Am I remembering this correctly, Taylor? Yes. And I, we looked up uh, at least one of those articles, and, and it seems like in Germany, uh, St. John's Wort is a better treatment than anywhere else in the world. They have uh, better outcomes in the studies there with St. John Wort, and it looks like maybe there's a kind of like a national well-known version of that that's used in the trials, and I wondered if, if there's something about the heterogeneity of, of St. John's Wort's, St. John's Wort that maybe gives different outcomes. Um, but the, but the, uh, across the board for SSRIs, the data wasn't very compelling at that point, in part because there were small trials, and I think there was a lot of, uh, I think they said heterogeneity between the outcomes. We looked at a newer study, I think, from uh, Dr. Fallon, right? 2018, something along those lines. Yes. And this was a study that compared placebo, Prozac, CBT, and joint treatment, or Prozac, CBT, and joint treatment against placebo. There were a couple of different arms in this, it looked like. Uh, at least that was the way I tracked this. It wasn't entirely clear to me. And what were the outcomes in that article? And if you don't remember, I might. I, uh, I don't remember the <laughs> specifics. Uh, I'm not sure I do very well either. We had a lot that we were trying to sort through. And, and let's, let's be honest, it, it felt like the literature was, um, it got a little bit messy with name changes. It did. Uh, not only that, but there's, again, it's, it's not a cut and dry situation. This is something where we're continually trying to find better treatments and better options and better diagnosis. We, we don't, you know, as we saw before, we had a very small agreement between the, the normal interview and the CIDI structured interview where we actually agreed on, on it. Uh, I do remember uh, that it basically just said the joint treatment is overall better of, you know, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy and psychotherapies with uh, SSRIs or SNRIs. Mm -hmm. um, but it still wasn't uh, a massive improvement or some game-changing uh, literature about it that I remember. Can I tell you I just had an aha moment? Mm -hmm. I thought they were injecting joints, but it was the joint treatment with um, uh, <laughs> fluoxetine <laughs> and, uh, and CBT. Yeah, and, and for some reason I think there might have been a comma out of place in that article. I'm, I'm going to blame it on that, even though I'm sure it was me. Um, so interestingly enough, I, I think that was the, they made the case, the Fallon article made the case that there hadn't been strong studies prior to this looking at SSRIs, CBT, and the combination, and that this was the most well-powered study to date. And I think that's probably accurate based on our reading of the Cochrane Review. And I think they came to the conclusion that CBT and fluoxetine were more effective the joint treatment with those two items uh, was more effective than 
uh, either alone and more effective than placebo. So I think there's at least a trend there. And it, I, I, we've talked about this before. I think we talked about this in the last podcast, uh, Danny and, and Miles, I think you were both there, where we talked about evidence-based medicine being focused on making sure that we're not just trying to treat what seems to be a physiological mechanism with whatever physiological mechanism might be out there. We're trying to say, okay, we think this might be a treatment, now let's prove whether it's effective or not. And interestingly enough, not every SSRI has an FDA indication for uh, PTSD, for example, and perhaps there is a difference in the SSRIs in terms of how they might uh, be effective in treatment of somatic symptom disorder. So I think at the moment the best data is if you're going to use an SSRI, probably use fluoxetine. And if you're going to use a psychotherapy, I think at this point the best data is probably for CBT. Um, but I was surprised to see there's a lot of other articles and studies that have been published looking at other psychotherapies. Did you have any other comments on the other psychotherapies that you wanted to add? Um, not necessarily, other than uh, a lot of it pointed to the kind of secondary uh, benefits of, of adding the, some of these therapies. Uh, for instance, fluoxetine added to that joint therapy um, <laughs> was actually better at improving uh, this the, the article mentions hypochondriasis being the illness anxiety disorder um, and uh, decreasing anxiety uh, significantly enough to improve quality of life in a lot of these patients. So that anxiety driving a lot of these uh, somatic symptom disorders, uh, kind of reducing that and, and helping them through it, uh, you know, the secondary benefit, not necessarily a, we are going to treat this per se, but it definitely helps them get through. Interesting. I, I thought it was fascinating. The Cochrane Review from 2012 made a comment about side effects of SSRIs, which I tend to think are, are generally pretty tolerable medications. Um, they made the comment that they were fairly intolerable, which I wasn't sure I agreed with. And they also made the comment that uh, because of the side effects, somebody that has somatic symptom disorder might find those to be new reasons to be concerned, right, that it would generate anxiety. I don't think that was borne out in their analysis because the tolerability of placebos and medications in randomized controlled trials seem to be about the same. Um, but it's certainly something to think about, and I, I do wonder uh, what role informed consent may take in something like that where you are very explicit about the number of potential side effects that somebody might experience, especially if they have that tendency to uh, somaticize the different things that they're feeling. I quite often push my students to either focus on the history and the evolution of the condition. I wasn't able to do that in this case, so I, I hate to ask you about that. And I also push them to look at um, what, what is the biological cause of this condition? What, what factors come together? We have some idea about the psychosocial factors such as childhood trauma or sexual trauma. Um, but we don't have the same kind of information, I think, that we're taught as, as uh, residents or medical students about the biological um, aspects that may play a role in this kind of a situation. I think you took a look at that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about maybe some of the biology associated with this condition to, that, we, that the scientists have, are looking at and seem to think there's signals with? Yes, so uh, they do something in, in Pardon me if I get this name wrong. It's functional 
uh, wait, functional imaging, functional, there's, there's a fancy word for it, but the functional MRI is one of them that they use, but there's, um, uh, anyway, these, these functional imaging studies uh, where they take, obviously, the, the average population, you know, a, a target group, um, and the, and a, and a, pardon my inability to come up with this work, the normal group, the control, control, control and group. the target groups, thank you, and uh, the, the functional MRIs just show slices of where, where these uh, parts of the brain are activated, and there are a few uh, suggested, suggested locations that actually light up quite well on the MRI, but most of them are still in, in uh, deep in study and not actually at least from what I understood, uh, the most recent one being 2019 that I saw, they said there are a few locations that we're continuing to look at, but nothing that is significant enough to say, oh, we can scramble this part or target that for therapy. But there are quite a few that were uh, activating on those fMRIs. It looked to me like the amygdala might be one of those that, that uh, sticks around for a while. And yes. then the other thing that seemed to pop out to me in, in this article and, and maybe in other articles with some of these conditions that seem to have overlap is this idea that there is a deficit in attention to somebody's body that may have a neurological basis as well. So uh, we talk about things like anosognosia here at the Utah State Hospital, which is an inability to recognize the condition of, of psychosis, right? That or, or of the mental health maybe is a better word. And that anosognosia, that lack of awareness of self, it looks like maybe there's some sort of uh, neurological underpinning to these, uh, this range of conditions, including somatic symptom disorder that may have this inattention to body, almost like we think about anosognosia. And I'll, I'll be interested to see where that goes and how that gets explained in a way that I can feel like I, I have a better understanding of what's being communicated. Um, one of the things I didn't ask you about, there are some patterns that a physician might look for. I think we were going to talk about this originally when we talked about uh, what a primary care physician might see, but uh, uh, <clears throat> that, that initial intake that you have or those follow-up evaluations, if, if you're starting to develop a, a suspicion for a somatic symptom disorder, what are some highlights of, of the exam? and the history that you might uh, point out to us that would help us on the shelf exam. Yeah, so one thing you might see is patients who have too many symptoms uh, or in too many different organ systems or these symptoms are lasting too long to support diagnosis of anything specifically. So what I'm trying to say is if somebody comes in and says, well, my heart hurts, my lungs hurt, my belly hurts, and I can't go to the bathroom very well. Okay, well, we might have some uh, somatizing going on, um, or somatizing, pardon me, and uh, or if it's going on for too long and they have had, you know, uh, any number of, of primary care and uh, specialists looking into their diagnosis um, without any, again, without any positive uh, testing coming through. Uh, that says anything like, yes, you have a heart disease and that's why your heart hurts. If none of those come back positive from multiple different specialties or even primary care doctors, you might have somatizing patient. 
So some of these, uh, as I said, you know, GI symptoms or pseudo-neurological symptoms, as we uh, talked about prior to this podcast, uh, pseudo-seizures um, can come on and, uh, you know, where the brain functions completely normal. And the, the uh, e electroencephalogram EEG, comes back and says, you're not having a seizure. It's a pseudo-seizure. You're, you're I think the, I'm going to interrupt for a second. I think the phrase that the epileptologists use now is non-epileptic seizure. Okay. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, the word that is. Although the literature, I think, will have the the other phrase as well, the the pseudo seizure phrase. Okay. Um, and and one of the main ones, of course, being uh, pain. So diffuse pain or pain in the extremities with no reason for it. Uh, those are going to be a lot of the the presentation of these somatizing patients. Um, also, you can have uh, symptoms out of proportion of a healthy appearing patient. So they can sit down in your office and say, I'm in a 10 out of 10 pain right now, doc, and it's in every single one of my four limbs, and I feel like my heart's gonna blow up. But uh, what can you do to help me? Well, if they're <laughs> not in 10 out of 10 uh, uh, visual pain, because um, there, there is something, you know, you can tell that they're in pain, but if they don't act like it, uh, in addition to organ systems or too many symptoms, in general, then that can be um, uh, ca that can also be a red flag. Can I throw out a, a little bit of a caution with that? I, I remember one time in medical school, I I was uh, in the emergency room. I had never been there. Nobody told me how to. You know, they didn't say, "Okay, here's how this is going to work. Here's what you do next. Here's how you evaluate this patient." It was sort of like, "All right, we got somebody that's bleeding in you know whatever room, and we think it might be a, some sort of." Uh, uh, I think it was a. GI bleed of some sort, and I went in, I was terrified, um, absolutely terrified, and didn't know even where to put my stethoscope, I was so terrified. Okay, I'm listening to what again? Do I need lung, lungs? Do you do lungs if it's a stomach thing, maybe? I mean, it was just terrible. And uh, I remember that like three days later when this uh, patient left the hospital, he looked at me and he said, I just want to thank you. Everybody else was running around, they acted worried, and you appeared so calm. It gave me such a great, you know, feeling that everything would work out okay, and I, I just want to tell you thank you for that. And <laughs> I, I think sometimes people's affect do not, or, or it's not congruent with what you see, and so I, th I think it's one of those things that builds a case. So if you see somebody that is in 10 out of 10 pain, and not grimacing, not squirming, not having any of the uh, you know the associated traditional signs, then you add that to the list of okay, I'm thinking this guy might not have pain because I don't see the traditional signs. But it could also be that that person is really really hurting, and if it, it hurts to move, I, I just don't know. I'm I'm always really careful about interpreting what I see. I try to add it to build the case more than make a decision based based about that. Yeah. So I, I'll just throw that on top. But again, there are. Uh, people that are much better at assessing whether somebody's in pain than I am. I just meant it. They're saying ten out of ten, of these, right? Ten out of ten, and my arm feels like it just got blown off, and it's been going on for for three years now. Okay, then, and then then you can kind of use that as a way of diagnosing, or at least at least throwing it in the in your uh, differential um, at yeah. that point. But but don't use it. Obviously, don't use just the way that their face is moving or if they're okay. squirming as a as way an of diagnosis. Pain, right. It's not a positive but it, test. But it starts to give you that clue, I think, is, is, is a great way of saying that. Yes. 
Good. Um, I think uh, history notable for sexual trauma, which was one of the things that you mentioned in the case scenario, Danny, and anything else that we might consider being important in the, in the uh, evaluation of the patient at that point. Uh, well, again, just making a diagnosis, uh, kind of, we need to follow along with the DSM, uh, DSM-5 currently. Um, would you like me to read those off just to yes. kind of clarify, clear the water here? So the DSM-5 criteria are greater than or equal to one somatic symptom that is distressing or results in a significant disruption of daily life. That's the first criteria. Mm -hmm. The next one is excessive thoughts, feelings, or behaviors related to somatic symptoms or associated health concerns as manifested by uh, either disproportionate and persistent thoughts about the seriousness or persistently high level of anxiety about health or symptoms, or third, excessive time and energy devoted to those symptoms or health concerns. Um, so that's that excessive thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, people going doctor to doctor, trying to figure it out what it is that's the only thing they can do with their life. That's the excessive. And then uh, somatic symptoms, of course, they don't always have to be present at the time, but they must be persistent for about greater than or equal to six months. Excellent. Um, a lot of areas that those symptoms can come from, and I think you had a bullet-pointed list of those in the past. Uh, somatoform disorder required uh, at least a few symptoms from different groups. That's changed now with somatic symptom disorder, and I think you can, uh, if you want to give us a bullet point of where those might come from, I think that would be great. So gastrointestinal, uh, symptoms, pain symptoms as we've discussed, cardiopulmonary symptoms, pseudoneurological symptoms, uh, reproductive organ symptoms, and then other uh, various syndromes such as you know atypical chest pain, food allergies, fibromyalgia, things that just kind of widen that uh, possible differential as to what might be going on. Excellent. All right, we are now in just about 40 minutes and that uh, feels like a pretty good stopping point. Did we cover everything that you prepared? Yes, I feel like I yeah, I took care of all my, my research and a little bit more. All right, on that note then, I'm not gonna ch sign out yet, but I do want to hear Danny and Miles, anything that you learned sitting here for the hour that you didn't already know that you think might be important for other people to think about? Danny, let's start with you. Starting with me. And saying that your wife makes really, really amazing uh, Rice Krispie Treats doesn't count. <laughs> That's true. She does, though. Um, just, I was reflecting a little on how it is difficult to hold so many different differential diagnoses in your back pocket at one time, whether someone's coming in with this kind of hard to describe pain that's everywhere. Are we thinking maybe fibromyalgia versus a somatic symptom disorder and, uh, or any sort of peripheral artery diseases? It's just hard to hold all of these in your mind at the same time. That's a great point. Uh, I, th I think awareness helps, experience helps, um, but that's a great point. There's, there's just not a good way around that, is there, that I'm aware of. Miles? Um, I had two thoughts primarily. The first was about 
what what diseases or, or, or what syndromes or, or what disorders would have been characterized as somatic symptom disorder, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that have since, you know, we, we've discovered and we now have diagnostic criteria for, a diagnostic criteria for those and maybe, you know, future disorders that we just don't have a diagnostic criteria for. That was the, the first thought. And then the second thought, I was thinking about malingering and are there times when it is when it is appropriate? And I was thinking about professional athletes and how they will fake, you know, you know, flop, being hit, and how it's almost an expected thing, where you know you'll see it in soccer, <laughs> you'll see it in soccer, you'll see it in basketball, and that fits that definition, that criteria perfectly, where someone is faking an injury or faking getting hurt for the sake of you know so that the other team gets a red flag or you know gets a technical <laughs> foul anyway. Not, not that, you know, that, that wasn't a very, I wouldn't say that that no, that's was, a, that's know, a was super deep, but it was definitely one that came to mind as far as one that, you know, a form of malingering that we just kind of accept. That's interesting. Uh, I, I also thought a lot about uh, not flopping in basketball, but the other, which was what, what group of things have we found that seem to help us pick up um, disorders that we wouldn't have known about before that were categorized into some sort of uh, mental health condition. Um, I think one of the interesting ones might be something like fibromyalgia because it, it does seem like there's something that's sticking around with that, that there might be some evidence that there's some sort of maybe inflammatory process, some other process that I don't know that I understand uh, yet. And I think when I started in medicine, I was left with the impression, whether it was intentional or not, that this might be a different manifestation of depression. I think most people don't feel that way anymore. Um, I think the, that might be an example of what you're talking about. And of course, I mean, there's once we're talking about fibromyalgia, I know that there are certain points where pain can be reproducibly triggered and that that's part of the diagnostic criteria. It seems to have more overlap with psychiatric illness in that uh, way than a lot of other conditions that might be assessed medically. Um, and, and so I, I, I'm fascinated by that as well. But also if you read some of the articles on uh, conversion disorder and malingering, they'll talk about neurological examinations that, uh, and fictitious disorder, they'll talk about neurological examinations that take advantage of midline characteristics of, uh, uh, of, of uh, neurological distributions for sensory or the uh, decusation and how you'll have maybe differences on half of your body above a certain point and below a certain point, right? Or uh, the sternocleidomastoid, which um, if you have weakness on your right side, your left sternocleidomastoid is still strong and you still can have uh, movement that belies the, the, the neurological findings. So I think one of the things that I thought a lot about was the neurological exam hasn't seemed to change a lot for a very long time and yet we still have these findings that don't fit the neurology that we know and so so I think the issue does come to something like uh, the last article that Taylor uh, came across which is there is a deficit not in the uh, motor and neurological functioning regarding where we're seeing the deficit it's somewhere else in the brain and it's showing up in this place uh, for whatever reason, right? Whether you know, whether it's you know, related to some sort of trauma, it might be one of those things that has biopsycho and sociological um, underpinnings that all come together to form a very complex picture. So I'm excited to see where the research goes in the future.
I'm hoping that as we have better imaging techniques, we, we have a better ability to figure that out. Taylor, this is, uh, this is your podcast. I think you did a great job with this. I'm very impressed. My question to you is this. What did you learn that may help you in the future? So just understanding, because in physiatry or physical medicine rehab, it's not just the pain management. That's a subspecialty. That's kind of the, the end of the road. Once you get there, then you you're kind of stay there. But in general physiatry and inpatient, we're going to have patients who have been brought to us, uh, you know, just to be seen by a cardiologist or GI or somebody who says, well, I've done what I can do with these other symptoms, but they also have something on top maybe by chance the pain is associated with the GI disorder or vice versa. We don't know chicken or the egg. So send them off to a pain management doc or physiatrist and say, hey, maybe you could help us out. So if that comes to me and and now having a little bit more uh, in-depth research rather than just taking a shelf exam or a step uh, exam, I can actually walk through and go, okay, you've been in the healthcare facility for this long and you know use this many healthcare dollars and nothing has come of it and you've had six surgeries and nothing has fixed it so what the heck oh that's right somatic symptom disorders maybe it's something that we need to help along the way you know uh, psychologically versus just sticking another needle in them and injecting them with some anti-inflammatory or uh, managing their pain with you know opiates which is a big no-no right now but uh, you know, trying to help somebody along the, the, their goal towards a you know healthier body and healthier mind. I like that a lot. It seems like this might give you some ideas about, okay, I'm frustrated. I don't know what to do. Might have been what happened before. Now in the back of your mind, you have, okay, in this case, there might be benefit from CBT. There might be benefit from fluoxetine specifically, there might be benefit from some of the other psychotherapies, mindfulness and so forth. And I can now make a referral to somebody else that may have a better chance of helping than me going, I don't know, send them back to where they came from kind of thing, right? And I think anytime we can find treatments that truly help our patients have a, a more meaningful life, spend fewer days worrying about their health and so forth, we're probably uh, you know, creating some value. Yeah. Uh, again, very well done. On that note, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Uh, let's, uh, on that note, I think is what I'm supposed to say. Team out. Team out. Team out.